Amen. Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We begin a new study tonight in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and I'm thrilled and excited, and I also enter it with much trepidation. Uh, That'll become increasingly obvious the further we get into this uh, book together, but uh, I anticipate this will take us through the spring semester as well on into and through the summer. Uh, Tonight we're going to look, however, just the opening words of greeting in verses 1 to 3 and uh, and look at those in the midst of a brief introduction to the letter itself. How do you speak to people when there are difficult things that need to be said? When the topic is hard because the people you're confronting are in the wrong. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, is no conflict avoider, as some of us are. But he is filled with what we might call bold love, of love that's not wishy-washy, love that doesn't say, live and let live, you go your way, however you think is right for you. But Paul doesn't begin there. And uh, so we're not going to look at those difficult things except by way of mentioning them. Because first, Paul begins by gaining the right to be heard by his hearers. And so I want you to consider that tonight. And let's then look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through, th- 1 through 3. Hear now the word of God. Paul, called by the will of God. To be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would write it on our hearts, that you would build up the body of Christ, that you would relieve our fears, that you would strengthen us to be a people who can hear hard things about ourselves and not fear you, but look to you for help. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been chewed out by someone who had no right to do so? They just came out of the blue and you thought, why are you talking to me about this? And why are you saying these things to me? In, in high school, I, I co-chaired a, a United Way fund drive. Uh, each homeroom class was supposed to pass a plate and collect donations for the students from the students. It was usually the pocket change that was around. And each morning before class, promptly at 8 a.m., when the PA public address system came on in every classroom and the principal said his remarks, well, the, the fun drive directors got to say a brief word about how it was going. And it was designed to create a kind of competitive spirit among the classrooms to see who would donate the most. Well, for whatever reason, I'm not sure I know now, 
or even knew then why I did it, but um, I thought at the time of a brilliant idea to really bring in the big bucks, you know, my announcements over the PA system, and by the way, I mean, that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a high school student to address the student body by the PA system. Well, to drive the giving, my oh-so-clever idea was this, to announce each morning not the classrooms that had collected the most, but that which had collected the least. Good morning, Yesterday, Mr. Papelka's homeroom uh, collected uh, a measly 27 cents for the United Way drive, but, but not to be outdone, Miss Zimmerman's class collected 8 cents. Well, as you can imagine, that didn't go over very well, especially with the teachers whose names were associated with the paltry gifts of their students. And... Um, exposing others as tightwads publicly and shaming them uh, didn't impress too many people. Not too many others were motivated to give. No, I was highlighting the failures of people in the most public way possible, and my motive wasn't love for my hearers. And who was I anyway? I was just another high school student like the rest who got saddled with this responsibility of being the fun to drive guy. And I was quickly losing whatever respect I may have had with anybody. And so, no, it was not a good year for the United Way drive the year I ran it. (laughs) My little experiment lasted only one day, as you can imagine, as wiser heads prevailed and as the complaints piled up. So... My approach was counterproductive. My hearers could tell I didn't care about them or really the needy people we were raising money for, but evidently I seemed to care about making a bad joke at the expense of others. Not a good way to begin a public speaking career. Here, Paul in Corinthians is going to address particular situations about which Paul has heard and also to answer certain questions that he has been asked. And he's going to have to say difficult things, but he doesn't start with those difficult things. Now, I want you to see why Paul is writing them, though. It helps to know that this doesn't come out of the blue for Paul. He doesn't send an emissary somewhere to spy out the land and then follow up with a letter to blast them. No. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, if you have a Bible, just notice there that he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you. And then chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. So on the one hand, there's two examples there. Things that which have been reported to him by others from among the church and over which he is grieved. So he's responding to those things. But then they've also asked him questions in chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, he says. And chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food, Offered to idols. And chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. You see, they've obviously sent him a list of questions about these topics. And so he's responding to those. So so you see what Paul is doing. He is working through the list of questions as they've been presented to him in the back half of the book. 
So again, Paul's letter is, is on the one hand responding to reports others have brought him about the state of the church, as well as questions that have been addressed directly to him by the church. So Paul is going to engage, and he's going to have to say some really difficult things, and as he begins, he wants to be sure they're going to listen to him. And so what, what do you say to people so that they'll listen to you? You want your words to carry weight and to pierce the heart. And how can they carry weight if they're thinking, well, who are you to tell me this? And if they're thinking, well, I've heard what you have to say, but I've seen the way you treat me and speak to me, and I'm done listening to you because I could really care less what you have to say to me at this point. You've never shown me any love. So Paul begins then in both those areas by establishing why they ought to respect and listen to him and and proving that he does love and have their best interest in mind. And so we want to look at those two major things today. Uh, Paul says, listen to me because I have Jesus' message for you. And he says, listen to me because I believe in Jesus' work for you. Those two big things, and then a few points of application. So in the first place, notice what Paul says. The way that he even opens the letter, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, this is who's writing to them, right? And Paul is saying, listen to me because I have a word from Jesus for you. Now listen, as, as we come to hear Paul over the course of a year or just short of it, I hope that your instinct will be to want to hear Paul. He says in this book some of the most beautiful things that have ever been written, some of the most universally acclaimed things. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, for instance, and I want to point you there, although you'll recognize it, probably most will, as I read a portion of it. He says one of the most profound and universally accepted things about love And their instinct, like your instinct, our instinct when we hear it, is probably to to agree with it. Notice, just listen to what he says in in 13. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove remove mountains, but, but have not love, I am nothing. And then he goes on, skipping to verse 4, to define love. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I mean, this is one of the greatest, most beautiful, and and, uh, universally received as true statements about love that has ever been written. But there will be other texts that we will read and hear, and your instinct won't be to say, I agree with that. It will rather to be to say, I don't think I agree with that. And if I do, people will hate me if I believe that. Ask the guys on Duck Dynasty. 
No point in reading those texts now. We'll come to those soon enough. But what I want you, what my point is this. Before we go back to Paul in chapter 1. My point is this. I, what I want you to see about your instinct is that it's possible for your instinct to be misguided. And you shouldn't simply just trust yourself. We hear, we hear that great love passage and we think, oh, how wonderful. Love is so great. Maybe I'll have that read at my wedding. But you know, the first hearers of that love passage wouldn't have heard it as a warm and tingly, or with a warm and tingly feeling. They wouldn't have said, oh, this is so wonderful. Isn't it great that we love like this? No, they would have heard every phrase as a rebuke, as a sword piercing the heart. Because by the time you get to chapter 13 and you've waded through all their issues of self-love and self-promotion and self-interest, then when Paul says love does not insist on its own way, it's like a dagger through the heart to them saying you haven't been loving and they would have seen it in that light. And, And so we hear it as warm and fuzzy and it is beautiful. But they would have heard it as a dagger. And so I just want you to realize that as you're hearing other things in Paul, your instinct as you hear it may not be right. Your gut reaction to what Paul says may not be true. And, and, and your inclination shouldn't be the foundation of why you receive it as God's word. Your instincts may be wrong. Paul appeals to something greater than our instincts. He gives three reasons why we ought to listen to him because his words are from Jesus to you. The first is he's an apostle. Go back to chapter one. Paul, he says, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is a sent one. Paul was sent from Jesus to bear Jesus' own message. This isn't his private opinion. These are not the best thoughts of a Jew who became a Christian. No, Paul is saying, my word to you is Jesus' word to you. You asked me questions, says Paul. My answers to you are the Lord's answers. That's what it means to be an apostle. There are a lot of competing voices out there for us saying to us, listen to me. I'll be the voice of God to you. I know what the will of God for you is. And Paul says, don't listen to just anyone. Don't even listen just to your own heart. But listen to the messengers Jesus has appointed. Listen to his apostles. And where do we find them today, friends? Not in modern day so-called apostles. Not self-appointed apostles. But we find the apostles today in their teaching where it has always been found in the letters of the New Testament, in God's word itself. Listen to them, and you are listening to God. So that's the first reason why you ought to listen. Paul's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Secondly, notice that he says, I'm called by the will of God to be an apostle. He's telling you, he's reminding you, he didn't send himself. He was sent by the will of God, called by the will of God. And he is, I think, alluding to his own conversion story. Uh, They knew Paul well. He had spent over a year and a half with them. A lot of these people knew him personally. They'd heard his story. You remember, he says, 
I didn't choose to follow Jesus. I wasn't always on his side. I haven't always been for the Christian church. No, Paul's alluding to the fact that he had hated Jesus. He had hated the church. He had sought to persecute it and to kill Christians. And then on that way, to, on the road to Damascus, Jesus had met him, startled him, humbled him, confronting him, converting him and appointing him to preach. Now look, if Paul intended to deceive the Corinthians or to discourage them or in some way to endanger them by the things that he's writing to them, you'd expect him to not allude to his past of doing just those things to Christians. He'd bury that and just move on. But here he calls it to mind. You know that I was called by the will of God to this. I didn't choose this, he's saying. I used to be the guy who was all against you. Remember that. And the Lord turned me around. And now I am for you and not against you, Paul is saying. So so whatever my difficult confrontation is with you, you receive it in that spirit. I mean your best. I'm for you and not against you. I'm called by the will of God to this. And then he says, and listen to me because of Sosthenes. Now, remember him? (laughs) Well, they did. But of course, many of us don't. Who was he? Well, in Acts chapter 18, we learn about the founding of the church at Corinth, and Sosthenes was there. Paul, Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth on his second missionary journey. And he had gone there, and, and then he had met Priscilla and Aquila, Jews had, who had had to flee Rome. And he preached with power in the Jewish community until there were lots of converts coming out of the synagogue who were believing the gospel and believing in Jesus as the Messiah. Even, it says in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians believed Paul and were baptized. So Paul was having a tremendous amount of initial success among the Jews. And then he was, of course, fiercely opposed by others who rejected his message. And so he left the synagogue to gain a hearing among the Gentiles. But, but what he did is he actually went next door and he rented a house right next to the synagogue and he began to preach to the Gentiles who were wildly interested in what he was saying. And, and in Acts chapter 18, we learn that since the chief ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, had become a Christian, of course they had to find a new ruler of the synagogue. So you know who that new ruler was? Sosthenes. I mean, he was the guy undoubtedly leading the drumbeat to drive Paul out and get rid of him. And we know that Sosthenes became the next ruler of the synagogue. You don't get that because you're sympathetic to Paul. You get that because you were verbal and antagonistic to Paul. And yet we learn, yet we learn that the Jews who hated Paul's message Uh, after failing to destroy Paul personally, they tried to take the whole thing to the Roman courts. But they failed at the Roman courts to get the court to do anything about Paul. And so then what did they do in their fury and wrath and anger? Because they couldn't get Paul and they couldn't get the Romans to get Paul. They grabbed hold of Sosthenes and they beat him mercilessly. 
They seized him, it says, in Acts chapter 18, verse 17. They turned on him, and the crowd beat Sosthenes. Now, perhaps that was because they estimated he hadn't spoken strongly enough or persuasively enough to the Roman government, and they were just mad. Or perhaps it was because Sosthenes himself had begun to believe Paul. Why would I say that? Because where is Sosthenes now? Years later, he's with Paul writing back to the Corinthians this letter. This guy who'd been beaten when the, Paul, when the crowd couldn't get Paul. Where is he? Paul says, he's with me. He's serving as my secretary. As best we know, as Paul often did, he had somebody that wrote down what he dictated to them. And that's likely what Sosthenes' position here. You go to the very end of 1 Corinthians, you see Paul actually writes something in his own hand and notes that he's writing it in his own hand because the rest of it wasn't. But be that as it may, Sosthenes, Paul says, he is all in. He's on board. He believes in the work of Christ and God's call in my life and we together, brothers together. Your brother Sosthenes, we write to you, Paul says. Listen because of him. Some time ago, uh, Dr. Bruce, when he was preaching on something, used the story of the Japanese soldier, some of you might remember, from World War II, who, who wouldn't give up. The last words of his commanding officer was, you know, were, don't surrender. And so here he was. Staying and fighting on an island off the Philippines, Hiro Onada, and he remained in the jungle of Lubang Island near Luzon in the Philippines until 1974 because he didn't believe that World War II had ended. Originally, he and three other soldiers had been together hiding out in the forest and living, forest and living at war with the surrounding people. Two of those died at some point, one killed in a skirmish, and the other, the third, in 1950, figured out, you know, five years after the war was over, that the war's over, and he fled too. But here's this guy living in the jungle, acting as though the war's gone on, and for 29 years, he is actually killing Uh, villagers and people at various times because he thinks he's in war Um, he killed uh, as the he just died this last week which is why this was fresh on my mind and I brought it up and he he had to be he was pardoned by the and I can't remember if it's the the king or governor of the Philippines for over 30 murders that he had committed but for him it was an act of war well All kinds of leaflets had been dropped all over the Pacific Islands because there were soldiers all over the place and telling them, you know, Imperial Japan has surrendered. He didn't believe any of it. He refused to believe it. He refused to hear the reports about it. And it was not until 1974 that the Japanese government, aware that he was still out there fighting, sent messengers to him. Who did they send? They sent his former commanding officer, who by this time had to come out of retirement to do that duty, to give him the order to surrender. And they sent Hiro Onada's own brother. Sometimes it takes those closest to us 
in relationship to make us even willing to open our hearts to hear something new or hard. And so the former leader and his brother, they said to him, you need to listen to the message of your governor. Don't be suspicious. Don't reject it. The war's over. And so he surrendered and he came home. And Paul, the Corinthians' former leader and church planter, and Sosthenes, the brother, they likewise say together, listen to Paul. He's an apostle. He was appointed by the will of God. And I, Sosthenes, I'm right here too. You need to believe this stuff. I'm willing to, I was willing to suffer for you. So that's the first thing. First thing, and then the second, in the second place, to gain their hearing, Paul says, not only do I have the message of Jesus to you, but I believe in Jesus' work for you, even though they were an extraordinarily messed up church. How messed up were they? Let's take a brief tour of that and then come back to what Paul says to them. It's startling. In chapter 1, verse 11, we alluded to earlier, they were fighting one another within the church, and they were picking teams as they went along. So some would say, well, you know, I follow Paul. And others said, no, 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 but I follow Apollos. And others said, no, I follow Cephas or Peter. And then others, the really super spiritual folks, they said, well, no, I follow Christ. (laughs) Trump that, right? And they were picking up teams, and they were at odds with one another. So there are these divisions. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says to them, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He calls them out for terrible immaturity, spiritually. In chapter 5, we're told, and we'll get there one day, that they acted like evil was no big deal. The kind of evil even their pagan neighbors were disgusted by. In chapter 6, brothers are suing one another in courts of law instead of handling their conflicts. In chapter 8, we learn that they were accusing one another of idolatry and tempting one another to idolatry. In chapter 11, we learn that in their worship service, during the celebration of the Lord's Supper, some people were, were, were feasting and drinking to the point of getting drunk. In chapter 14, we see that their worship service was so disorganized and full of chaos that people were talking over one another. And Paul says, you know when you get together, like one person should talk first, you know, and then another person after that. And in chapter 15, some of them had gone so far theologically as to say, well, there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. Others among them were probably actually saying something like, well, the resurrection of the dead has already happened. Spiritual life now is like resurrection. But regardless, they were stealing the true Christian hope from the hearts of people. The hope of something better beyond this life. I mean, this was a messed up, self-centered, arrogant, immature, and an absolute train wreck of a congregation. And yet in spite of that, Look what Paul addresses them by, how he speaks to them. He says, verse 2, chapter 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul says, you are sanctified in Christ. You're called Saints, 
In other words, you've been set apart by God and for God, and I believe that. You are claimed by him, Paul is saying, as holy ones, and he has given you the status of holy ones. I mean, saints is just the common everyday word in the Bible for a Christian. Every Christian is a saint. Every saint is a Christian. It's not some super spiritual category of like great Christian. It's just what a Christian is. One that God has set apart and given a new identity to as a holy one. Set apart by God and for God. And this is... Uh, very clear, the very clear difference than what Paul is saying is that there's one thing to have a position before God and another to have a condition before God. There's one thing to have a status or a standing or an identity with God and another thing to have your actual behavior be evaluated. That's a whole different category of stuff. Paul is saying, we might put it this way, you are as much a saint while sleeping or studying even if both are done with fits and starts and not far too little of both. You are as much a saint, we might say, in the classroom as at church, even when you're not paying attention in either place. Because you're neither more nor less a saint. It's an identity. It's not an activity. A saint is not some rare achiever whom God anoints. But it is all Christians Because you've been set apart by God for God's purposes. He's reserved you to himself. And it comes through union with Christ, he says. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. In union with Christ. You've been included in him. And the reason that you are accepted is because Christ is acceptable. And the reason that you are set apart for God is because Jesus set himself apart for God perfectly. And you are united to him by God. And so you have this... New found status. Jesus achieved for you so that you could be welcomed by God in him. And he sanctified himself for you so that you could be set apart for God in him. And that is what you are, Paul says. That is who you are. That's what God has done. And I believe in that about you. I believe this, Paul is saying. Even as I call you out for tolerating the kind of evil that your pagans Neighbors turned their backs on with disgust. I know the Lord has saved you, he says. I believe in God's best for you. I, I trust that what God is, what, I trust what God's doing in you, he's saying. And so before you hear my rebuke, be encouraged. Don't be discouraged by what I'm going to say to you. Be encouraged. I'm for you because I know that Jesus is for you. So listen to me. Got Jesus' message for you. Listen to me because I believe in Jesus' work for you. And three points of application as we close. This passage underscores, friends, the importance of not despising either the teaching ministry of God's church, the teaching ministry of the word. We listen to this book. But also not despising the church itself. We might have been tempted to take a look at the, at the situation in Corinth where all this crud is going on among people and simply write off that church. Or, as some do, simply write off God's church entirely as a hopeless enterprise. But Paul doesn't do that. What does he do? What was it, what's his response when the church is a mess? It's not to ignore it and then establish some other kind of parallel organization that, you know, he can call Christian. 
But he acts upon the belief and the hope that God would work out his purposes through his church, even when it's a mess, because that's what God is doing in this world. The second thing I want you to think about is this. Paul's going to have to rebuke them, and he's, he's going to do it in love. And love and rebuke are not in contradiction with one another. Paul obviously loves the Corinthian church. He has high hopes for what God will do among them. You don't rebuke somebody if you have no expectation that they might actually listen and be changed by it or God might do something with it. I mean, if that's what you really think, the case is hopeless, you give up and walk away. But at the same time, as Paul loves them and believes in them, He's going to tell them some very hard and harsh things about themselves that are true. And I just want to say it's possible to be a genuinely compassionate person and engage people about their sin and to to hate it, to despise it, to to, uh, grieve that it's ruining them and others, and yet to love them and confront them for their good for the purity of God's church and for the glory of God. The last point of application I want to say is this. Notice then how actually very encouraging this entire letter really is. It's it's actually incredibly encouraging. It certainly is to, to myself and other pastor friends I know that a church can be a church and be this messed up. (laughs) There's a kind of relief in knowing And we don't condone any of it. But there's a kind of relief in knowing that you can be really messed up and be true. It's kind of like Paul's cry personally in Romans chapter 7 in the last half. Some of you will know that. Where Paul, talking about himself, says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? And of course, his hope is Jesus. But it's this great passage in which which Paul calls himself out as a big sinner, doing the things he doesn't want to do and not doing the good he wishes he would do. And that's such a relief to us who are big sinners. That if Paul, at the end of his Christian life, as an apostle of Jesus, could talk about himself that way, and there's hope for him, that he's truly going to be saved, and he is, then there's hope for me. Likewise, so also then, with ugly Corinthian-like churches. What a relief. We stumble, we fall, we have to be picked up. Sometimes we have to be carried along. Sometimes we have to be rebuked and corrected. It doesn't mean we're not Christians, and it doesn't mean we're not a church. It just shows, friends, how much more we need more and more of the grace of God And his peace which brings wholeness. The grace and the peace that come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as he says in verse 3. As he prays it for them and hopes for it for them. That grace and peace which God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ delight to give and keep on giving. That's good news. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you. You are abundantly good and gracious, doing all good things that none of us deserve. And we're straining your hand 
from the things which we do deserve. We bless you. We praise you. We delight in you. Oh, help us to taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.